As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. They're doing things in Washington State, in Oregon, in California, in Pennsylvania, beginning to see them in Illinois, in Connecticut, in Minnesota. They literally have a strategy that's aimed at blue states and trying to figure out, okay, how do we take unions out of the equation? Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was excited to get the chance to talk to Steve Rosenthal. Steve is a longtime national leader in the progressive community, having worked in the upper echelons of the labor movement, the U.S. government, the Democratic Party, and its allied organizations. He served as political director of the AFL-CIO for many years, and in 2004, he ran America Coming Together, the $140 million voter mobilization enterprise. He is currently president of the Atlas Project and of the organizing group, his consultancy. Steve is someone you want to talk to about political history and the politics of the current day. He's animated by concerns for workers and for the future of the American middle class. I much enjoyed the conversation and learned quite a bit. You should listen too. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Steve Rosenthal of the Atlas Project and the organizing group. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. I'm Steve Rosenthal. I've been involved in progressive democratic politics for exactly 40 years. I just realized I'm going on my 40th anniversary. I, I think that most people either burn out or sell out. There are very few people who do it as long as I have. I've had the, the great opportunity to see democratic and progressive politics from a lot of different vantage points, from within an international union, which is where I've done most of my work in the labor movement, from within the Democratic Party, where I served in the 92 campaign, helping to put the field program together for Bill Clinton. I've had the vantage point of being within a Democratic administration. I served in the Clinton administration in 93 for the first three years, helping to build a new labor department. Then was the political director at the AFL-CIO for a number of years and had the great opportunity to help rebuild labor's political infrastructure during that period started ACT in 2004, which I think to this date is still probably the largest outside the Democratic Party voter mobilization in the country's history. And then since then have started the Atlas Project, which is a data research operation that has built an institutional memory for Democrats and progressives 
and a new thing called the Workers News Network that I'd like to talk a little bit about. So had kind of a varied career. Some people might say, geez, sounds like a guy can't keep a job, but it's been uh, an interesting ride. And I think I've learned and grown all along the way. What was the first thing that pulled you into politics? In college, I started out doing some anti-war, anti-Vietnam War activities and started doing community organizing around hunger issues in the early 70s. And then was looking for a job when I graduated from school and a professor hooked me up with a Democratic campaign on Long Island. That was my, 1977 was my first uh, paid campaign job. What did you do on that campaign? I was an advanced guy for a candidate named Erwin Landis, who was a state assemblyman who was running for county executive in a county that the Republicans had dominated for decades. And it was the first real shot the Democrats had because the incumbent Republican was running as an independent. The Republicans were running a candidate, so it was essentially a split Republican party against a Democrat who had an enormous amount of stature. He was a uh, chairman of the Appropriations Committee in Albany. And it was my first real experience with the power of opposition research because we were within striking distance when it came out in early October that he'd been practicing law for, I don't know, 30 years without ever having passed the ethics committee of the bar. And then we started to drop a little, but we're still in the race. And then it was reported that he hadn't paid his state income taxes in 10 or 15 years, actually hadn't filed any income taxes in, in that time. So it was uh, kind of my first lesson in the power of opposition research. What was your next step in your career after that? Um, after that, I uh, started working for the New York State Assembly Democrats. And uh, there was a kind of a political unit within the assembly at the time. And we were assigned to work in races all across New York State. So it gave me a really good two-year apprenticeship in how campaigns work. And then I worked shortly after that for the, for the New York State Senate before joining the Ted Kennedy for president campaign in 1980. I watched that convention. So I was probably 14 or 15. And his speech to that convention was so memorable for me and so emotional, I remember. Yeah, I, I actually still have it framed on the wall at home. I think you can read it today and it's still as fine a definition of what it means to be a Democrat as there is. And probably until 92. So for the next 12 years, Everybody in Democratic politics was defined as either a Carter person or a Kennedy person. If you were going to work on a project, the first question you would ask is, is was she for Kennedy or Carter? You know, people like to talk about ideological fights within the party now or the Clinton-Sanders fight. But the reality is that, in my view, that was like kind of the last great ideological fight within the party that defined the party for a long time. Carter has certainly changed in terms of how we all view him in his post-presidency. But at the time, it was, a, it was a pretty meaningful fight. It was. And we were, after that race, in the wilderness presidentially for quite a while. What were you doing through the, through the 80s? That's when I, I started working in the labor movement right after the Kennedy campaign. I worked at the CWA, first in New Jersey, where we organized state workers. Larry Cohen, who went on to become the president of that union and is now very active with Bernie Sanders, was the driving force in New Jersey where we organized 65,000 workers over about a six or seven year period of time. So I was heavily involved in uh, building political infrastructure for what became a very big union in a relatively small state. And we were running a very strong grassroots progressive program over that time. In 84, I took a short leave from the union and went into the Mondale campaign 
over the next few years, we, I moved to D.C. with the union, where I became a communications director and an assistant to the CWA president. And during that period, helped really advance the progressive uh, labor agenda. What was the main things you learned at the CWA? CWA essentially gave me a, a reason for doing this work, fighting for working families, organizing working people, understanding how workers only gained power and strength through collective action, kind of went to my roots in community organizing. But in fact, I've always considered the political work that I do secondary to the ultimate goal here, which is to expand and enhance workers' rights and to build the middle class. The labor movement that is responsible for building the middle class in America, it's not coincidental that the decline of the middle class has coincided with the decline of the, of the labor movement. There are certainly other factors, but I always find it interesting that we have economists puzzling over how we're going to grow wages and pointing to all types of solutions for trying to figure out how to increase workers' wages when the reality is that there's never been a period in American history where wages haven't grown as a result of union organizing and collective action. Employers don't just give these things out on their own. So kind of what I learned was the value and importance of the labor movement and how essential it is to our democracy, to virtually everything good that has happened in this country, not just in terms of building the middle class, but uh, civil rights, human rights, around the world, you know, it kind of rooted me, I would say, and, and gave me a reason for doing the political work beyond just electing candidates. It's pretty frustrating how much decline there's been in terms of percentage of people unionized in this country. It's certainly frustrating. And, and again, it's not coincidental. I mean, the, the reality is that the other side, for economic reasons, because they don't want to give workers more money and don't believe they're entitled to greater benefits and rights on the job. Republicans and conservatives have done everything they can to stack the deck against workers and unions. But it goes beyond that. I mean, there's been a wholesale attack on unions over the last decades. It's really actually interesting. There, there was a, a session about two and a half years ago at the CPAC conference, Conservative Political Action Conference, that takes place outside D.C. every year where there's three to 5,000 right-wing activists gathered. It was called On Wisconsin Turning Blue States Red. And you would think, okay, turning blue states red, they must be talking about mobilizing their voters or how do they advance their agenda or how do they cobble together right-wing groups to, to win their agenda. But in fact, it wasn't about that at all. It was, it was an entire hour, a session aimed at destroying unions. Their notion of the way to turn blue states red is to take labor out of the equation. So it isn't just an economic issue for them. It's very much a political issue. And the other side, I believe, is very good at targeting organizations and institutions on our side, like Planned Parenthood, that are effective and trying to wipe them out. And we're seeing that at that session, just as an example, it was chaired by Grover Norquist, who has been a longtime right-wing activist and going back to the, to the late 90s, has led the attack on unions when he tried to pass at that time, paycheck protection legislation all across the country. So it was it was Grover, it was Rance Privas, who at the time was still the chair of the RNC. And then there were three other people on the panel, one who had led the anti-public sector bargaining fight in Wisconsin with Scott Walker, one who had led the uh, right to work fight in Michigan, and the third person had led a campaign, a public campaign, to oppose the UAW organizing in Tennessee. So they literally spent an hour explaining to right-wing activists that the way you win is to take unions out of the equation. And what we've seen 
is them putting that into action using the, uh, the state policy network, the right wing think tanks, which I'm, I'm doing air quotes right now around think tank because they're, they're actually moving into organizing now. They, they canvass. They're doing they're running state campaigns. They're doing things in Washington state in Oregon and California and Pennsylvania, beginning to see them in Illinois and Connecticut in Minnesota. They literally have a strategy that's aimed at blue states and trying to figure out, okay, how do we take unions out of the equation? If you look at those states and look at what happened in the last election, particularly in Michigan and Wisconsin, in the 2000 election, let's go to that one. In the 2000 election, 43% of the votes that were cast in Michigan came from union households. And, and in that election, union household voters voted about 63% Democratic. When you take 43% of the vote and figure that it's voting over 60% Democratic, that's a very strong constituency for Democrats. Republicans recognize that. And what they did is they moved to make Michigan a right to work state. They were successful in decreasing union membership pretty dramatically in the state. And as a result, they, they seriously undermined Democratic votes. So in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in the so-called blue wall that started to come down in the last election, you can't talk about Democratic losses in those states, and you can't talk about white working class deserting Democrats without understanding that a big chunk of those white working class voters that left were union members. And they didn't, it wasn't that they left voting Democrats, they left their unions. They were forced out of their unions, they lost their unions. That was a very big loss for the Democrats. I, I estimate that in Michigan alone, Democrats have lost over the last few elections somewhere between 400 and 500,000 union household votes. That's an extraordinary number of votes to lose. And I, I worry that not enough people on the Democratic side understand that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for going on so long. No, no. I, I, it's very important. And I'm, and I'm glad to hear you talk about it. Do you think we're outmatched at the moment in sort of the big strategy of this competition between the parties? Oh, yeah. No, I, uh, there's no question. I mean, you can't look at it. It's not just undermining progressive groups like the labor movement or like Planned Parenthood or having a strategy for taking out their opponents the way the other side does. I mean, it's been well documented, the, the losses that we've suffered in a net loss of 10 seats between 2008 and this last election in the Senate. 63 seats in the House, 13 governors, 1,000 state legislators. I think we are well behind the other side in the organizing that we're doing and the strategic work that's being done. It feels like groups on our side tend to migrate back to the, the federal races. They're more attractive. Uh, it's where most of our organizations are housed here in Washington, D.C. And there's the uh, kind of the allure and the sexiness of being involved in federal elections. So while we talk a lot about how we're really focused on the states, and that's certainly central to most of the discussion that's going on right now. I'm anxious to see when we're down to the wire and the spending decisions are made, actually what will happen. Because if it does start to look like the Democrats have a shot at taking back the House, and, you know, God, I certainly hope that's the case, and there are shots of making gains in the Senate, I think we'll see again a migration to supporting those races, which I think gets to one of the other problems, which is the funding that the other side has the luxury of being able to spread it across all of the important battles where we have to make much more strategic decisions. And by the way, going back, just going back to unions again for a second, this is another thing that the other side fully gets that I'm not sure everybody on our side does, which is the huge role that unions play, not just in providing funds, but early funds and helping to launch campaigns. And once you begin to take unions out of the equation, and it's certainly very 
possible and likely to happen with a Supreme Court decision hanging over the head of the public sector unions, which are the biggest political players at this point. Once you take unions out of that equation, it's going to be very tough for our side to fund the things that need to be funded. How did you end up a political director at the AFL-CIO? Well, I was working in the Clinton administration and John Sweeney had been elected president and it was kind of a a little bit of a, a, a rebirth opportunity for the labor movement. And I knew President Sweeney. He had been the president of SEIU. I had done some work with him then. Some of the people who had helped run his campaign and who were closest to him had done a lot of work with me. And I produced a memo suggesting what the AFL-CIO should do and could do. He liked what it said. We met and talked it through. And I think, as I've said to some people, uh, there was only one way for the AFL-CIO to go at that point. (laughs) It was uh, coming off the Gingrich election in 94, where the right wing took control of the House. Labor really needed a a fresh look and a new program. What was in the memo? It was focused largely on carefully targeting our races, building up a huge cadre of organizers on the ground, focus again on mobilizing union members, which was, by the way, nothing new. There's a book that was put out in 1944 by the CIO. After the Obama election, I, I did some slides using pieces of the CIO organizing memo from the 1930s and 40s and said to people in the room, if I was training people, I'd say, well, this is from the Obama campaign manual. And I'd walk through it and people would say, yeah, well, that makes sense. And then I would say, well, actually, it's not from the Obama campaign manual. It's from a 1944 CIO manual on how to organize. So essentially what we did at the AFL-CIO was what unions used to do. We went back to organizing people on the ground. Uh, we targeted a bunch of house races. We began running the first issue ads in uh, battleground congressional districts. We targeted a bunch of the new right-wing house members with an aggressive campaign. And I think we did quite a bit to put labor back on the map. The book was called The First Round, by the way. And so how long were you political director there? I was there from uh, the end of 95 through the 2002 election. I left after 2002 and formed ACT with the notion that we had to take George W. Bush out in 2004, built a a pretty strong ground mobilization program. The the notion then was, well, we need to to do what we've done in the labor movement, but with non-union voters on a parallel track. It's very similar to a lot of the discussions that are taking place now with For Our Future and some of the other super PACs. But the idea was that We figured out something very basic, that when you talk to people, you can move their votes. (laughs) And uh, we decided that we wanted to try that on a grand scale with non-union voters. We're largely successful. I think the the big lesson for me out of the 2004 election is that the candidates matter. I know that there was well over $100 million in that America Coming Together effort. How did you find the team to put that all together? And what were the nitty gritty things you spent it on? So I started ACT. We, we initially called it the Partnership for America's Families, and then that was kind of the precursor to ACT. We started that in 2000, the end of 2002. In 2003, I heard that Harold Ickes was starting something called the Media Fund, aimed at putting together a super PAC to do media. Harold and I had worked together in the Kennedy campaign. We worked together in the Clinton administration. He's somebody who I have a world of respect for and kind of one of my longest standing friends in politics. So I approached Harold and suggested that we combine forces. And Ellen Malcolm was somebody we had both known. Ellen was uh, interested in 
doing something in that election beyond Emily's list. And she's had a history of being one of the top fundraisers in the Democratic Party. So essentially, we put together what I've described to people as kind of like the Crosby, Stills, and Nash of politics at that point, which was a, a super group with the three of us anchoring act. And I would say mostly Ellen and Harold raised about $200 million, and I figured out how to spend $146 million of it. I always wondered why it kind of showed up for that year and didn't seem to continue. Because because John Kerry lost. I mean, you know, it's very simple. If, if Kerry had won, everybody would have said, oh, my God, ACT played such an enormous role and we need to keep it going. But, um, you know, when Kerry lost, and like I said, I, I would say it was no fault of ours. We exceeded our turnout goals. We really met our goals in turning out voters in all of the urban areas, which is largely where we were focused, although we did some suburban and exurban organizing as well. But the Bush campaign clearly had, uh, did a better job. And frankly, I, I really blame it on, as I said, blame it more on the candidates, more on Kerry and, and Bush. But the reason that act didn't go on was because uh, donors tend to be a little bit fickle. People like things that win and we didn't win. So what did you then turn to? Well, I have a consulting business, so I do work mostly with unions, some candidates, but mostly progressive groups and unions. And then we started, I started the Atlas Project at the time with Michael Hooley and Mary Beth Cahill with the notion that there's no place for institutional memory within the party, that we tend to recreate the wheel in every election. So we were looking for kind of a a warehouse for campaign plans, budgets, polling memos, you know, whatever kind of information we could gather. So we spent a couple of years gathering as much information as we could. We picked up boxes from people's garages and basements where they had old campaign plans and cataloged all that stuff. We put it all in data files and created what was essentially the beginning of an institutional memory for the party. We then built it out and started to gather campaign information, worked with NCEC on accumulating data, added census data, built a dashboard. It started writing these roadmaps on the states, which gathered information on the election, put it all in one place, everything from there's a landlord in this state who is great with Democrats. If you're going to open a headquarters, it's a good person to talk to, to here are the election results, county by county or uh, below that. Uh, here's all the census data. Here's the campaign finance laws in the state, changes in the laws, the election calendar, all of that is in one place. And then we started doing interviews with consultants and campaign managers in all the states to develop a roadmap. So here's here's what the path to victory is in the state. Here's how Democrats either win or lose. And here's some information on, on each election that's helpful to folks as they begin to organize in states. So how well used is that? Is it uh, kept up to date or do lots of campaign managers and so on use it? What's the status of it right now? It's used across, largely across the labor and progressive group world, more than within the Democratic Party world at this point. It's totally up to date. We write new roadmap reports after every election. What do you need to do to get access to that information? You need to subscribe. It's a, it's a, a subscription that, um, you know, groups like the CIO, SEIU, AFSCME, NEA, Planned Parenthood, MayRAL, America Votes, a lot of the progressive organizations subscribe. It's the kind of thing where the more people who have it, the better off we think we are. So we've made a lot of efforts 
over the last few years to really extend the reach and, and to ensure that people know that it's there and a, and a good opportunity for them. I mean, so if I'm running a congressional campaign in Oregon or something, can I go look at it or? You have to have a, you have to have a subscription. You have to be part of an organization uh, that has a, subscri- a subscription. We'll, we sell it to consulting firms. We do sell it to individual campaigns if they're interested. What else have you got going on? Why don't you talk? Because you mentioned a number of projects. Yeah, so we are actually about to launch something called the Workers News Network, and it's a network to get people engaged in social media to network with their friends, family members, and coworkers. And what we're going to do is produce two or three times a week a text uh, email message that'll go out with four or five news items relevant to working people. It's going to be real concrete economic things that impact people's daily lives. And we've set this thing up in a way similar almost to to Axios, where there's like, in our case, four or five items with icons below. So you can tweet it, you can post it to Facebook, or you can easily text it to any family members, coworkers, or friends. You know, if there's an item, for example, that the Trump administration has agreed to use non-U.S. steel to build the pipeline, and somebody who's at a meeting or family gathering, a picnic or whatever, and somebody says something about Trump, they can say, hey, wait, but yeah, I just saw something where they said he's going to be a lot, that he's using all, all uh, non-American steel. Let me find it. And then they can pull up their text or email and easily send it to the other people who are gathered there. So we're looking for ways to put real news in real people's hands with the ability that they'll have then to distribute it quickly and easily. We're pretty excited about it. We've got four unions at this point interested in sending it out to their members. And we're going to begin to, and this is really just a pilot that we're launching right now. And then we're going to be looking for uh, other organizations and, and individuals who just want to get information and start to shoot it around as much as they can. You know, you've been in that world of sort of the economic situation of workers for a long time. And now we have a Republican president who came to office sort of trying to make his appeal to them. What were you thinking when you were watching that? And what are, you know, what's your wisdom on, on 2016? Well, um, somebody described it as kind of like an Agatha Christie novel where there were lots of stab wounds and, you know, probably lots and lots of perpetrators here. And there's a lot of blame, certainly a lot of blame to go around and we could spend hours talking about the election. I I will tell you this. I was in the last election, the SEIU political director had gone to the DNC, Brandon Davis and Mary Kay Henry, the president of SEIU, who we do a lot of work with them. Mary Kay had asked me to come into SEIU for the last six months of the election to act as their political director. So I essentially put some of our other projects on hold and along with a woman who's worked with me for 10 years, Jenna Fulmer, and I went to SEIU and were helping to drive their program. And I spent a lot of time in Michigan in the last couple of weeks and also in Pennsylvania, both states, SEIU had big programs. And I can tell you that for a month, we knew that Michigan was in real trouble. This, the city of Detroit was essentially like a morgue in this election. You know, you'd go into Philadelphia and there was activity on every street corner. There were, it was like a political festival. It almost looked like Iowa or New Hampshire before the caucus or primaries. The level of activity was through the roof in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. 
and the numbers bear it out because actually Clinton ran as well as Obama in both cities. I think she ended up coming out of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia with only about 10 or 12,000 fewer votes than Obama got there, which is pretty extraordinary. Detroit, on the other hand, I think Clinton uh, ended up with about 40,000 fewer votes. Now, some of that, a little bit of that is population loss, but mostly it's because there was no activity on the ground. There was no voter voter to contact going on. Is that because their data analytics said, don't worry about Wisconsin, don't worry about Michigan? I mean, what, what was going on there? I think some of it certainly was because the, the data and analytics were telling them not to worry. I mean, the president of the Michigan AFL-CIO told me recently that he was being told repeatedly by his counterparts in D.C. that Clinton was going to win Michigan by 12 percent. I was asking Priorities USA because I was on the IE side. I was asking them through the month of October in texts and emails. So what's going on in Michigan? We're really worried about it. And I kept hearing, oh, we're five points up, we're six points up, we're seven points up, we'll, we'll be fine. So I think I, I do think that part of it was the analytics, and then that led to a lack of investment. In, in the two wards, just by contrast, in the two wards that we were active in, three and seven in Detroit, which are two of the toughest wards in the city, we did an analysis after the election and found, for example, that looking at the, the turnout scores, really from zero to about 60%, we doubled or tripled the turnout among the voters we talked to versus those who were uncanvassed. So literally just having an operation on the ground, talking to people, communicating with them about the election, and then helping to turn them out made, you know, a phenomenal difference. Unfortunately, it wasn't going on in the rest of the city. And the same was true uh, in Milwaukee. Both of those were big problems. The second thing that was a, a, a huge problem is, you know, look, I would argue I've had a 40 year battle with the media consultants about the amount of money that we invest in paid advertising. But the Clinton campaign actually spent $155 million between mid-June and Election Day in Florida, Iowa, North Carolina, and Ohio. Those were four states they didn't need to win. Would have been nice to win, but didn't need. Spent $155 million in those states on paid advertising. Clinton campaign and Priorities USA. And in Wisconsin and Michigan, they spent $6 million. $6 million to $155 million. Wisconsin and Michigan, two states they desperately needed to win. We've created kind of what I would call a, almost like a generation of automatons. These are campaign operatives who don't quite understand the analytics, but blindly follow. The folks who do the models have created this environment which says, basically, you don't need to understand this. You just need to follow it. And we've got a group of people now who run campaigns who, to use you know football terms, they don't know how to call an audible. They get to the line of scrimmage. The other side is doing something different. Comey is holding a news conference 11 days out. But their analytics tell them, this is the, these are the voters we're targeting for GOTV. And we're going to only have a discussion with them about, did you make a plan to vote? And what I would say is that the Analyst Institute and the work that it's done and the modeling world have created some good opportunities for us, but I think it's like a, it's a little bit like a game of uh, telephone where the Analyst Institute says something and it gets whispered to the next person, whispered, 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 whispered. And when it comes out at the end, it's really different than where it started. And the example I'll use, the Clinton campaign drove their whole GOTV around make a plan. Supposedly the data show that when you ask voters if they've made a plan, 
and uh, work them through what they're going to do on Election Day, they're more likely to vote. In Philadelphia, for example, and I, you know, I was there in the morning, I was launching the SEIU volunteer canvases. And then in the afternoon, I was volunteering on my own in the Clinton office just to see what they were doing. And they, they ran a good, you know, a good operation in terms of get, giving people packets, getting them out and so on. But you could look at their targets at that point and say they were really, really narrow, number one. So they were going to the same houses over and over and over again. And you would knock on people's doors and they would answer the door and they would say, I know I made a plan. I'm voting. I know you're here from the Clinton campaign. I made a plan and I'm voting. So the Clinton campaign was doing Make a Plan, GOTV, SEIU was doing it, the AFL-CIO, For Our Future. Um, every organization was knocking on doors asking people if they'd made a plan. There were lawn signs, handmade lawn signs that said, I made a plan, don't knock on my door, I'm oh voting. Oh my God, this is really upsetting me, actually. When you track the research, what you'll find is that in 2008, two academics did a study looking at a primary election in Pennsylvania, and they found that Make a Plan GOTV increased turnout by 4.2% over standard GOTV messaging. That was in 2008. They wrote their paper up in 2010. In 11, it started to make its way across the Democratic community. In 2012, the Obama campaign embraced it. By 2014, 15, and 16, it's become the only way that we, that we do GOTV. If you look at the Analyst Institute GOTV best practices, to their credit, it, under Make a Plan GOTV, it says more research needs to be done on this. But that's not, you know, whispered down the lane. What's happened is, oh, Make a Plan is the way we do GOTV. And as a result, our entire community is doing it. The fact that the, the FBI director 11 days before the election said, we're investigating your candidate, might mean that you want to change your plan a little bit. Maybe you want to have different discussions with people at the doors. Maybe some people should stay on Make a Plan, but other people will want to be talking to people about other reasons that they might still need to vote vote for her. But I think we've become such automatons on this. And so, you know, we've got these blinders on when it comes to um, to making changes that we're losing elections because we're misinterpreting the rules and the laws. And the reality is that we've got a lot of people at this point who want to make campaigns a science. And in fact, it's a combination of art and science. And look, I, I came out of a world where Part of my rap used to be that we were the biggest industry in America, politics, with the smallest amount of money spent on research. So when I was at the AFL-CIO and then at ACT, we helped, I think I helped usher in an era of you know, analytics and, and data. But we've gone so far in the direction now of people believing that they can scientifically prove everything about campaigns. We're losing sight of the fact that the campaign is, is a living and breathing thing, that it's politics is people talking to people and that we need to make adjustments based on what we see, what we hear. The new catchphrase in DC is feedback loop. We need a better feedback loop and that's good and it's true. But what it really means is we need to listen to voters, hear what they're saying, and then make adjustments based on what people are saying. And I think we've got a long way to go to fix these problems because frankly, we've almost got a generation of people who, um, it's, it's kind of like the way I've described it. It's like, people who only know how to desk, uh, build a desk by using an, an Ikea direction sheet versus an artisan who can build a desk 
by taking some wood and figuring out how to make something beautiful out of it. I talked recently to Simon Rosenberg about the campaign, and he felt like one of the big errors was not really making the effort to win the argument about the future, like not proposing a better immigration plan than Trump had if he was going to run on that. My observation also is that we've gotten, and I think it jives with you here, is that we've gotten better on tactics than strategy. I think that's right. I think Simon's right about that. Bill Clinton taught us that elections are about the future. The Clinton campaign and Hillary Clinton failed to paint a vision of where they wanted to take the country. I learned how to do messaging from a guy named Paul Tully, who was my mentor. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a Tully message box, which he used to teach people how to do messaging. So you start off in one box with the, how does the candidate define himself or herself? In the second box, it's how does the candidate define their opponent? The third box is how does the opponent define themselves? And the fourth box is how does the opponent define you? And if you're fighting a campaign in the two boxes of, you know, defining yourself and defining your opponent, you're winning. If you're fighting it in the other boxes where your opponent is defining you and your, de your opponent is defining themselves, then you're losing. And what was interesting, I think, about this last election, I would do this exercise with folks as I was talking to them and training them. And when you ask them, OK, fill in the box Trump on Trump, they would say, make America great. You know, what have you got to lose? They would say, deport the illegals, uh, drain the swamp, put illegals in quotes again, drain the swamp, we'll create jobs. He's not a politician. He's a billionaire businessman. He's going to build a wall. That was Trump on Trump. If you said, what is, where's Trump on Clinton? It was, she's crooked. She's a liar. It's going to be more of the same. Things will get worse. She's not fit for office. She, you know, has serious health issues. Part of the Washington establishment, she should be in jail. If you did Clinton on Trump, it, it was pretty well defined. He's reckless. He's dangerous, not qualified, uses hateful rhetoric, unfit to be president. You know, I would defy people repeatedly to fill in the Clinton on Clinton box. All that we ever got was she's the most qualified. And then we'd say, what else? There would be like dead silence in the room. They couldn't fill in the rest of the box because even though the campaign will claim while they had trouble breaking through on the issues or she really did have an agenda that she wanted to put out there, it got lost in the shuffle. And they never really painted a vision of where they wanted to lead the country, where she wanted to lead the country. Yeah, she didn't market her ideas very effectively, even if she had a lot of them. I think that's right. Uh, it's so it's so hard for me even now to think back on, on that campaign. What do you think of Trump as president? Um, it's the first time I've, in my life I've refused to refer to a sitting president as President Trump. I just can't get I can't recognize this. I will not, you know, I will not dignify him with that term. Um, it's an absolute disgrace. Every day it's, it's shocking. I, I, it's the first time in my life. You know, look, I've, I lived through Ronald Reagan. I lived through Richard Nixon. I was in college at the end of the Nixon presidency and was flabbergasted and ashamed of the country at that point and that he was our president. This is by far worse than anything that I've ever seen. And I'm fearful for the country and fearful for the world. It's interesting because right after the election, I was having a hard time figuring out why I felt so much worse about this guy than anything before. And it was Harold Vickies who said to me, it's because he's completely untethered. 
there's nothing anchoring this guy. He doesn't come out of a party, the establishment, a state. You know, he's a, a complete and total loose cannon. And uh, it's, but it goes beyond that because yes, he's untethered, but to the, any extent that he has instincts, they're all bad. At least so far, I keep expecting him to latch on to a more effective strategy just by sheer happenstance. But so far, his intuition about what's good for the country takes him the wrong way on everything. Yeah, and it, and it is absolutely the wrong way on everything. Like he ne- he do- he never ceases to amaze me. Everything that he says and does is is wrong. Um, but you know what's worrisome is that. You can't beat something with nothing. And to this point, the Democrats have failed to articulate where they what what's the Democratic vision now that Clinton's not the candidate? Where do either our congressional leaders or our state leaders want to go? What are they going to do to raise wages and rebuild the middle class? Is it possible? What's what's the 10 year plan? Is there some type of a solution to the jobs issue that the Democrats have? It's really Frightening to me because, you know, I could see Trump getting reelected, honestly. I currently give him a 60% chance. Really? I do. Um, based on most incumbents get reelected, you know, or two thirds of them, they get reelected if the economy is good enough. And he is, a, you know, in his own way, in his weird way, he's kind of a formidable candidate. He generated, someone estimated, $6 billion worth of earned media. So he's going to get every piece of attention. He's absolutely has no compunction about lying about anything or mischaracterizing anything to his benefit. So, you know, I don't think he's a good candidate, but he's a dangerous candidate. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and, the, and the lying stuff is just astounding because he will say the same thing. Oh, you know, it is. It's the big lie. It's you say the same thing over and over and over again. And people start to believe it. And and it's going to take someone with a really big and strong personality. You know, honestly, I thought Hillary did a pretty amazing job in those debates of standing in with him. And under a lot of duress, I thought she had poise and made a good case and won those debates. But it's going to take somebody, it's going to take a fairly substantial person to to do better than she did. I mean, with this guy, you really need to go blow by blow with him. And yeah, no, I agree with that. And the other thing that's interesting for me is that this is the first election that I've come out of without a full understanding of what to do in the next one. In other words, if somebody said to me, for example, right now, you're managing Wolf's campaign for governor, you know, re-election campaign in Pennsylvania, I would have a pretty good sense in normal years how much I'm going to spend on advertising, broadcasts digital, ground game, mail, fundraising, etc. What I'm wrestling with is how much of the last election was the new way of doing business and how much of it was an anomaly. I pity the campaign managers who are planning the 18 races because it's really tough. I was talking to one at a session the other day, a a woman who's running another governor's re-election campaign, and she was wrestling with digital and, you know, the governor has been telling her, oh, what, what are we doing on Facebook ads? And essentially doesn't use Facebook, but knows that he needs to advertise on it. And I think there's this whole kind of um, that gets the media consultants again. A lot of the media consultants now are selling digital ads, of course, because there's a lot of money to be made in that. So their whole thing now is, well, the other side outspent this on digital. So instead of getting smart about it and thinking through 
what do we want to accomplish with digital? I think the Clinton campaign used digital primarily to raise money. The Trump campaign used digital to move votes. Uh, the Trump campaign and his Russian allies used digital to move votes. We need to figure out much better what we're doing. It's not just investing more in it. It's figuring out how we want to use it as an organizing tool. But it's one part of this overall puzzle. What this next election in 18 is going to look like, then laying the predicate for 2020. And you're right. I mean, we certainly need a candidate. Assuming our country makes it to 2020, we're going to need a candidate that is a bigger personality and can go toe to toe with this guy. But beyond that, from the mechanics and strategic standpoint, I, you know, I, I'm a little baffled about what we're doing and what we need to do now. I think that you know, your work in starting American Coming Together and Atlas Project and so on makes you a political entrepreneur. What do you think are the characteristics of a strong political entrepreneur? Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I think that it's um, being able to look at, you know, fill a void to understand what it is that we need at a given time. And, and I think you've done a lot of this with the organizations that you've started is to look at the void and try to figure out how do you fill it, to have the the connections, the ability to talk to, articulate that to people, explain what it is, and then help fund it. And then assembling a team, which I've always thought is in some ways my greatest strength, which is making sure that I bring the best people together to do the work. I think that there's a little bit of a problem on our side in that we've got a lot of entrepreneurs. And as a result, we have a lot of organizations spinning around out there. You know, I saw recently, for example, that there's a, a new fund that Ron Klain, I think, is helping to head up for a group of Obama folks to make investments in new data tools and new organizations on our site. I'm not sure we need a lot of new organizations. I think we need a lot of training of people. And I think sometimes we, because we're more entrepreneurial than the other side, we end up creating a lot of organizations the right looks at a state and they say, what, what kind of, you know, the Koch brothers in particular, what organizations do we need to put into and build in this state in order to win? It's kind of like hiring an executive chef who has a menu and then giving the chef the money to go out and get the ingredients to put together a really good meal in that state. What we do is kind of like, it's like the TV show Chopped where we open the basket in that state and we look inside to see what organizations we have and we try to figure out how do we make a meal out of these out of these organizations their way of doing it may be more effective than ours but part of it is that we have a lot of organizations we have a lot of people who you know see a void and fill it we have to try to then scramble those ingredients together and make an omelet to stick with the food analogies here you know what i believe is that we've got to take the tools that are in our chest and learn how to use them better. It's a combination of things. The, the models aren't uh, the Bible. The models are another tool to be used with our other targeting, with our polling, with our voter research, what the candidates are saying, you know, what we're hearing back from voters through digital media, that it's all, all of that needs to be put in the pot and the campaign flows out of that. And then to cast a critical eye on the research to be sure that, as I said before, you know, with the example of the Make a Plan GOTV, that the research is real and applicable to the to the race that you're in. But I think we I, I think we need to be a little more critical about that.
So that was Steve Rosenthal. He's at organizinginc.com. We are lucky to have political entrepreneurs like Steve Rosenthal on our team, devoting their lives to the progressive cause. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.